0: Hey Al, what you reading? It's X Men issue ten from nineteen sixty
1: four. I, I didn't realize this was the first appearance of Kazar in the modern Marvel universe. You know, now that you mention it, that is one of the stranger points of interest in those early issues. Are you a Kzar fan? Absolutely. I mean, for my
0: money, you can't beat Mark Wade and Andy Kubert's run on the character from the late nineties.
1: Wade and Kubert—that is an incredible team.
0: Oh, man, it really is. Like, their run is all about Khazar being a child of two worlds, civilization and nature, and not to mention the incredible plot hatched by Khazar's evil brother, Parnival Plunder.
1: That is an amazing okay. name. I take it he has some kind of appropriately grandiose scheme and some kind of secret weapon? Oh, yeah. Uh, what, an orbiting space laser trained on the Savage Land? Mm, no. Okay, a, a machine that turns humans into dinosaurs. Sauron's been there, done that.
0: Then what? He keeps Thanos in a closet in his office. What? I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Al Kennedy, filling in for Jay
1: Edgerton while he's on parental leave. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 399 of Jan Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to something that we've been looking forward to on this show for a really long time. This is the beginning of John Francis Moore's X-Force road trip era.
0: I love John Francis Murr. John Francis Myrrh wrote one of my favorite ever X titles, which is X-Men 2099, which I know is not normally a well-regarded
1: comic, but I absolutely love it. You know, I've never actually read uh, X-Men 2099 aside from uh, maybe like an issue here and there. So I know we have like completely unrelated stuff to talk about in this episode, but what's the elevator pitch that you have for why... 2099 is enjoyable what do you like about it
0: i love the fact that instead of doing what could have been very straightforward and going here's wolverine 2099 and cyclops 2099 or you know we've, we've cloned the x-men at some point in the future or something like that they literally were just like right let's take an entire brand new x-men team let's make them up from whole cloth and what what have we not done on the x-men we don't have a speedster really so let's have a speedster. This, this guy Mean Streak is gonna be our speedster. We don't have a stretchy person. So this girl Serpentina with the long arms with snake tattoos down them, she's gonna be our stretcher. And things like that. And it was it was a team that not didn't always want to be together. One member of the team in particular um, who was this big kind of red demon looking guy really just wanted them to leave him alone and let him live in a shack in the desert by itself. They just kept getting drawn back into it. And it was all set around Las Vegas with um kind of appropriately glitzy villains and their version of Professor X was even more of a jerk than the Professor X who we know and tolerate. And it was drawn by ron Lim as well which in the 90s for me was a huge plus point i was a massive silver surfer reader at the time so getting to read uh more ron Lim stuff was great and yeah i just it, it was it was an x book that felt like the x-men always feel like their own special little corner of marvel universe anyway and x-men
1: 2099 felt like a little corner of a little corner Okay, no, that that actually sounds immensely appealing. I'd always sort of discounted it in part because there were already so many X-Books and I only had so much allowance as a kid. But uh, now that Marvel Unlimited exists, um, that that sounds kind of great.
0: Interestingly enough, there's an omnibus of X-Men twenty nineteen coming out and I think it's due in in something like April or May this year. So it should be going on Marvel due at some point this year.
1: Oh, okay, it's not already. Well, I, I will. I will keep an eye out for that. I, that'll be my next big read through. I, I made it through um, all of Cable, all of X Men, all of Wolverine. I mean, the first big volumes. So I think this is next on the list.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think they'll they'll put some bits and pieces of it up um, as it crossed over with. For example, there's a five-part crossover with uh, Spider-Man 2099 and various other things. So there will be a small amount of it up there. Yeah, I think just checking um, at the moment, there are nine issues on there. And it looks like actually it's the first nine.
1: So you can actually get a a decent taster of what it's like. Excellent. Okay, I'll just read it real slow while I wait for the rest to come out. (laughs) But we are not here to talk entirely about X-Men 2099. We are here to talk about X-Force. And as this is a surprisingly good jumping on point here with issue number 71 onward, perhaps we should talk about what happened previously on X-Force.
0: This is a great jumping on point for X-Force. It was a point that brought me back onto the book having been driven away by Shatterstar's endless Cat's Cradle continuity revisions. But to boil it down, X-Force are... Essentially, the new mutants, they're a kind of extreme
1: 90-second incarnation of them.
0: And they are no more.
1: Well, not as an official team, anyway. Because after the Operation Zero Tolerance event, their longtime mentor, Cable, you know, grizzled cyborg from the future, he wanted them to go underground with new assumed identities. And they were very much not into this, and so the team scattered in various directions.
0: And we'll be following five of those characters
1: who stayed together. So, what remains of X-Force? Let's start with Danielle Moonstar. That's Mirage, or maybe Psyche, or maybe Spellbinder that one time, or maybe just Moonstar. Anyway, she's back on the team after being away for a number of years. First, she spent a while in Asgard, where she was Valkyrie, until she wasn't. And then she spent a while working as a double agent inside X-Force's nemesis team, the Mutant Liberation Front. Uh, she can shoot psychic arrows these days, and she's always been able to call out people's greatest fears or desires. Who else do we have?
0: We've got Roberto da Costa, Bobby da Costa, as is also better known. He has also spent some time away from the team. Most recently, this is because he was taken over by a villainous persona called Rainfire, during which time he led the aforementioned MLF, kind of, not exactly. Well, we will learn more about that soon. His uh, key power is that he can go into solid black solar powered form where he's super strong. He can fire blasts of solar energy and he can fly because he decided he should be able to fly, which is, I think
1: that's a kind of Oprah Winfrey secret style manifestation. You know, I tried that. It hasn't worked yet. Maybe I just don't believe hard enough. Make a vision board. I should. We've also got Tabitha Smith. That's Boom Boom. I mean, Boomer. I mean, Meltdown. You know what? Let's let's just go with Boom Boom. Uh, anyway, she's been written very differently by different writers, but she generally has a hell of an attitude, enjoys chaos, and keeps her feelings locked safely away. Also, she makes plasma time bombs. Uh, that thing I just said about chaos. Uh, that. We've got
0: Teresa Rourke, aka Siren. She's the daughter of longtime ex-person Banshee, and she shares his mutant power of a sonic scream, which... Again, also lets her fly for some reason. Her mother died when she was a baby, and her dad didn't even know she existed for over 15 years. She was raised by her uncle, Black Tom Cassidy, and did crimes with him. And her various assorted traumas led to some major problems with alcohol over the years. She was helped through those problems by a teammate who had a big crush
1: on her, that being... James Proudstar, Warpath. He's the younger brother of 70s X-Man Thunderbird, who died on his second mission out when he tried to punch an airplane to death. Warpath was on the New Mutants' rival team, the Hellions, for a while. That's the team that was run by one of the leaders of the villainous Hellfire Club, Emma Frost. And after Warpath left that team, he found everyone on his Apache reservation at Camp Verde killed, with the Hellfire Club mask left behind, thus implicating his former buds. He recently did an other-dimensional gig for an information broker to find at the location of an apparent survivor of that massacre. As for powers, he has enhanced senses, strength, durability, and speed, and he'll eventually learn to fly, too, because why not?
0: What are five twenty-somethings with no home and no mentor to do? Road trip! Yeah. Classic staple of superhero comics. Let's not forget the hard-travelling heroes era, Green Arrow and Green Lantern. Road trips are a great way to take a break from uh, a title's previous direction because you get to put the characters in a bunch of different situations. You don't have to have big, long, ongoing plot lines. You can have your subplots bubbling along in the background, which is what we, we have here in these issues.
1: But it does give you a little bit of a chance to have a breather. Very much so, and I think it works especially well for characters like these. I mean, X-Force may have grown up out of being the New Mutants, but they're still pretty young. They're still probably in the vicinity of their early 20s at this point. And certainly when I was in my early 20s, I did a number of road trips, some just short basic ones to go visit places, some long meandering ones with various friends and ill-advised hookups and adventures and almost getting arrested. Well, I think we felt more badass than we were. We probably didn't actually almost get arrested. (laughs) But it really does evoke that era, that era where you just don't have a ton of immediate obligations and you're still figuring yourself out and going from place to place to place really fits that. Is that something that you have as part of your past, Al? I mean, I know, obviously, we have very different national upbringings. I don't know if that's related. I
0: think the, the biggest difference is we have very different national geographies. Going on a road trip in the UK, you, you don't get to drive for very long before you hit the water. Um, <laughs> we, I did go on um, short jaunts to – I mean, Scotland's not a big place – to uh, various places around and you go away with friends on um, holidays, little camping trips or whatever, which are all great fun. Most recent road trip I went on was actually in November where we drove for the first time to the Thought Bubble Convention in uh, in Harrogate in England. And that was great because there was a a kind of eternal rolling contest of who can put on the next great song
1: on (laughs) on the stereo. Yup. And that's actually something I like about road trips, uh, well, specifically, but but also generally, is that without, you know, the big overarching plot, like you said, in comic stories, but also kind of in your life when you're on the road, it's a liminal space. Like you focus more on that little stuff, those little bits of the personalities and preferences and interests of everyone involved, which Mm. is so good for character work and fiction also. Absolutely. And
0: I think it really helps in these issues that you've got a new writer coming on, because it's somebody who doesn't have a ton of baggage with these characters, is brand new to it, is excited, is, is raring to get onto the book, and is able to set out their stall with how they see the characters' individual personalities and how you see them merging
1: together. Yeah. And John Francis Moore, of course, did a little bit of X-Force before this. He did some of the Operation Zero Tolerance parts. But this, yeah, it's really the first story that is just his and his alone. So I guess let's just dive into X-Force number 71, Destination Unknown. Written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Adam Helena, inked by Mark Morales, Rich Perota, Mark Perdeau, and Walden Wong, colored by Marie Javins, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft's Emerson Miranda. So in the issue's credits, the inkers are actually just listed as Team X. They're only retroactively credited, I think, in the next issue. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Team X, we've heard that name before, haven't we? We have, yeah. That was the
0: CIA-run group that Wolverine and Sabretooth and Maverick were on.
1: Okay, so does that mean that Wolverine and his buds were not actually like Secret Asian hitmen? They were just comic book anchors? I think so, and I think for this
0: specific Team X here, much like Wolverine's time in Team X, their memories of the period are stressful
1: and spotty at best. Oh man, if it's not the carbonadium synthesizer, then it's inking (laughs) deadlines, both traumatic. Yeah, I love the carbonadium
0: synthesizer. It's one of the most expressive of all the electronic musical instruments.
1: (laughs) Now I just wish that Omega Red had been after like a Moog synth or something. (laughs) So the cover to this issue is great. And it is also the rare gatefold cover that is not for an issue ending in zero or five. It's also a regular length issue, and I'm not even sure if it cost more. But on the right side of it, which of course is the front of the comic, we have Mirage hitchhiking on the side of the road and on the back of the comic the left side is the rest of the team like warpath has his arms crossed looking all confident looking into the distance sunspot's leaning against him playing game boy siren and boom boom are sitting on luggage with siren reading a book and boom boom listening to music and they're all in casual clothing none of them are wearing superhero outfits
0: yeah sirens dungarees in particular very much place this issue in the mid-1990s
1: oh yeah the 90s fashion is glorious right here uh the 90s were by no means all good, by no means all good. But the clothes were, were just so comfortable and fun. I mean, I'm probably biased. We're probably both biased. <laughs> yeah. uh, the luggage includes Boom Boom's old pink bunny slippers from the Sabretooth story from Jeff Loeb's run. Uh, there's sports equipment. There's a boom box. There's a McDonald's bag. Like, this all really sets the tone. This is not a superhero book right now. I mean, yes, there will be superhero stuff in it, but that's not sort of the wrapper that the gift is in.
0: Absolutely. It's setting its stall out as being something that's different from what's come before, particularly given that Operation Zero Tolerance is just wrapped up. They do want to make sure you know this is something that is new. The cover itself was actually used for an in-Comic House ad. With the caption, it was Bastion's Way or the Highway. And uh, we will fight evil for food sign at Mirage's Feet. Thank you very much to listener, Ben, for pointing that one out. So it's uh on-the-road vibe for an on-the-road era. It is not your... I won't say you're not your father's X-Force, but it's maybe not your older brother's X-Force.
1: <laughs> yes. My father's X-Force was the New, was the new Mutants, it's true. <laughs> um, but it's uh it's fun and i think the book is very aware both with the cover and with everything else about it that it's going to be a jumping on point i mean um pretty early on we get a nicely uh, situated recap of what came before yeah it's
0: warpath demanding full exposition really that that full-on as you know your father the king kind of expository dialogue
1: To Warpath's credit, he was off reading stories to Demon Bunnies in Another Dimension for a while recently. So, you know, he did miss some stuff. Alas, probably the reason they were hitchhiking on this cover is that their car has broken down, as cars tend to do on road trips. And it's Boom Boom who's trying to fix it. Because remember, her father was an awful abusive jerk. But he was also a mechanic, so she knows how to do this. She even mentions that um, even though she's good at it, she's no Maggie the mechanic. Nice little Love and Rockets reference there for us. Uh, And with a run of run of run of run of bloom the car makes it clear it's not going to be fixed by Tabby. So they're trying to figure out what to do. They debate using their powers to get out of the mess, to, you know, fly, since half of them can fly for some reason, to get help. And it's Mirage who says, If you're going to make a stand... Make sure it's one that counts. That is the Danielle Moonstar that used to co-lead the New Mutants. And of course there'd be tension as she slots herself back onto the team. She hasn't been one of the New Mutants in ages. And so Siren, for instance, who has been the deputy leader of X-Force for a while, is a little resentful that nobody listens to her, but they do listen to this person who, to her, is kind of a newcomer. This kind of soap opera, this kind of drama, to have that be immediate on, like, page two, it helps us get to know the characters, but it also gives us that sweet, sweet X-Men personality clash glory. It absolutely does. And she's right to be annoyed because this has been her
0: team. You know, she's been on this team since, what, X-Force issue one or two or something like that. It's super, super early on. And in comes this person who, as far as they were aware, was running with their enemies for a long time, and suddenly everybody's like, oh, it's okay, the real boss is back, we can start doing what we're told again.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate that nobody's, like, actively mad at each other, nobody hates each other, but there is that kind of simmering tension, just like there would be in any kind of a social group where people are coming and going, uh, folks in their early 20s. It's, It's just so good. I... I mean, we have a lot of plot to get through, but I feel like we could just talk the entire episode about just the personality interactions between these characters. I love the way John Francis Moore does this so goddamn much.
0: Absolutely. It's terrific. Luckily for the characters, I guess they're not left stranded for terribly long because they do get picked up pretty immediately thereafter.
1: Uh, yeah, as they stand near a billboard that says DSX Machina, that's the name of a band, uh, but also what happens. Because uh, the Mystery Machine from Scooby-Doo and Shaggy and Velma, albeit with different names, show up to give them a ride. That really seemed more like a, something that would happen in Generation X than something that would happen in X-Force, but hey, new writer. <laughs> yeah, they
0: mentioned having dropped out to follow the giant robots around on tour. And the great thing about the Marvel Universe is that could be a band, or it could be some giant robots
1: could be some giant robots in a band (laughs) absolutely the cybertronic spree (laughs) well our heroes are stuck in a small town in the middle of nowhere until parts come in and this gives them a great chance to just relax to talk about the car mechanic who's flirting with mirage to try to find some vegetarian food for mirage in the middle of rural america uh definitely experience i um, have had with with road trip buddies in the past as well to sneak more people into a hotel room than they're paying for. Cause Bobby's credit card got cut up due to a lawsuit. His father's estate is, is suddenly in like, this is all very early twenties road trip.
0: Yeah. I did this, the exact thing, um, age 22 when I went to San Diego Comic-Con for the first and so far only time, uh, three of us sleeping on the floor of a
1: very small motel room. Yup. Yup. Exactly that. And I just love the way, I mean, we've talked about how much we love Moore's take on these characters, but I love Adam Polina's take on these characters as well the combination of Moore and Polina seems to really make a lot of them click in a way they didn't before. And I think especially Sunspot, like when Sunspot finds out what happened with his unlimited font of money, he's first just screaming into the phone, just like holding it in front of him with his eyes bugging out and then just falls to his knees with his head in his hands. Like this is appropriately dramatic Roberto da Costa. That's- that's one of the aspects of the character I like. He's always just so passionate about any given moment he's participating in, in some direction.
0: Absolutely. And at the same time as that's happening, Moore gets in this kind of subtle nod to Danny Moonstar's, and often hinted bisexuality. After Claremont left New Mutants, he pretty much took with him the suggestion that Danny and Rain were attracted to each other. And then Danny and Cannonball were kind of brought to the fore as a couple. But Danny's reference to the mechanic not being her type is a low key callback, and it's a good piece of character work. We're going to see Danny hint further in that direction in a few issues time, but that's
1: for a future episode. Yeah, um, I feel like Danielle doesn't get talked about a lot in that regard. Like, I mean, obviously Karma is the um, the out queer character uh, from the original New Mutants that we know about. But yeah, that's always kind of been a, a subtexty thing with the character. Um, mm. She'll she'll end up with Nate Gray for a long time later. I never really understood that dynamic. That never made sense to me. I mean, I don't know. You you know Nate better than me. Does that I, make sense to you?
0: It's just Nate Gray's um, secondary mutation, which is that any story he appears in, any female characters who are anywhere near him for some reason <laughs> fall all over him. I do like the fact that any male characters in the stories will not stop pointing out what an imbecile he is and how desperately uncool he dresses particularly nowadays
1: and the five of them uh like you mentioned with your san diego comic-con trip they're crammed into this tiny hotel room with two twin beds that they argue over uh and argue they argue about like who's going to take the first bath they really come off as friends here they come off as characters who, you know, have different amounts of history with each other and different opinions toward each other, but this is like a coherent, complete social group. It's believable. Yeah, they rag on each other, but they're also supportive of each other.
0: I love the line where Tabby mentions that she wishes the room had cable. Come on, Tabby, you just got rid of that guy. But that was <laughs> right.
1: <you. laughs> anyway, he's beefy sized. There's definitely not space for him in there. no They need to push the two beds together just for him. <laughs> <laughs> So this isn't an entirely directionless road trip. Uh, One of their big goals is to find Michael Whitecloud. Remember, that's the apparently only other surviving member of the Camp Ferry Apache reservation that the Proud Stars lived on. Warpath gives a little recap here, also for any new readers, about the weird alternate dimension adventure he had rescuing the Vanisher in order to get that information. The Vanisher is one of the greatest creations in the history of the
0: x-men and it's purely because he is a teleporter whose real name is telford porter he could be nothing beyond that and still be amazing and to be honest he's not much beyond his name (laughs) (laughs) frankly
1: i do appreciate though that in addition to that amazing name which weirdly doesn't come up here i would mention that at every opportunity if i were a comics writer Uh, But I love that John Francis Moore remembers that Boom Boom hates the Vanisher because she used to work for him. That was the beginning of the Fallen Angels miniseries, or maybe it was an X Factor before she came on. Anyway, one of those. The point is that's a little bit of continuity that A, is fun to bring up, and B, plants a little seed about Boom Boom's past working for the Vanisher as a thief that's kind of going to get picked up on later. It's actually very deft. We'll get to that. Yeah. Danny and Warpath banter about which of their tribes, the Shiner or the Apache, actually received fire from the Trickster Spirit coyote um, in, in the story. That's one of the stories that comes up during this. Uh, Boom Boom's taking the whole story is that she just needs a jetpack. That's her conclusion. It's so much fun. And the art also is. Uh, we see the flashback of Warpath illustrating what happened in this alternate dimension, which is just really bizarre, like these cartoon rabbit-dog things listening to him in this blasted wasteland. But there are these contrasting little panels to the side of each of the new mutants in their sleep clothing, just looking skeptical and amused and continually interrupting Warpath's story. It's it's solid gold. Adam Polina, I mean, Jay and I have mentioned this on the show before, but... We weren't so sure about him at first, and he is now, like, just one of my favorite uh, X-Force comics artists ever.
0: I really love Adam Polino. One of my favorite X-Men minis is the Archangel mini, which he, he drew. Um, not because the story is great. I mean, the story's fine. But because the art is, it, it takes this style and it goes even beyond that to really weirdly kind of uh, distended figure work and stuff. It, it's incredible. I really love it.
1: It reminds me of Duncan Rouleau doing that juggernaut one-shot that I loved so much. Yeah,
0: and that's a really great story as well.
1: Yup. Well, the slumber party is interrupted by some commotion outside, so they head out and they save a young man named Richie Allegria from mobsters who are trying to stuff him into a trunk.
0: Yeah, the mobsters are apparently named Stan and Ollie. I always love it when people do that in comics. Give them yep. <laughs> like reference names. Although it's always one step away from giving them comics reference names i think every single street in gotham city is named after somebody who drew batman in the silver age
1: (laughs) yep it's like the horror writers in silent hill being the names for the streets exactly well, the mobsters are scared off, and Richie offers X-Force a suitcase of cash to work for him, which leads directly into X-Force number 72, Lies and Deception.
0: Yeah, the writer on this issue is John Francis Moore again, penciled again by Adam Polina and inked by Mark Morales. The colors are by Marie Jamins and letters by Richard Starkings and Common Craft's Emerson Miranda. I love the name Emerson Miranda. They sound like a private
1: investigator. I know, right? Like, everybody who works for Comicraft, there's also Colia Fuchs, which is a great name. Like, I think you have to have an awesome name to get hired into Comicraft. (laughs) That's part of the
0: interview process. This is how they sift the resumes. This is the first step in the whole thing. But anyway, (laughs) the cover of this issue has got Mirage and Sunspot and Meltdown hanging out with a briefcase full of money. They've got a Tommy gun. They're all wearing these very sharp kind of mobby suits. And the cover is black and white with these spot reds and greens. And it's got the dual effect of making the cover firstly really stand out because it's a very unusual thing to do, particularly this kind of period of superhero comics. And also it makes it look incredibly Christmassy with all this red and green all over it.
1: It really does. Speaking of Silent Hill, come to think of it, where the cover's had a habit, especially with the Greatest Hits version of having a lot of red and green on them. I just think about Silent Hill too much. I'll focus on X (laughs) Force. Well, you would think that having Mirage at
0: Sunspot and Boom Boom wearing these 20s gangster suits and holding Tommy guns and so on would just be kind of a gimmicky cover. It wouldn't really appear in the issue. But no, that's exactly what they're wearing as Richie's bodyguards when the gangsters come calling at Richie's hotel. One thing we should note here is that the leader of this group is this tiny stocky dude with a moustache a coat
1: and a hat and his bodyguards are two massive kind of gorillas in suits yeah it reminded me a lot of the rich guys and bodyguards uh from the triplets of belleville which is a great animated movie and not one that has anything else to do with this other than mobsters doing bad things people should check it out if they've not seen it though it's a great uh, almost entirely silent no dialogue uh
0: movie about um the tour de france and a criminal conspiracy around it and it's If you like Adam Polina's work, you will love the the artistry in uh, Triplets of Belleville. The conversation that they have with the mobsters, call it a conversation. It doesn't last very long as a conversation. It breaks into a fight pretty quickly. Um, But it is quite civil until one of the goons tries to frisk Boom Boom. By frisk, we really mean
1: grope, effectively. And so she starts a fight saying... Let's get this straight. I'm not going to be pawed by any Sonny Corleone wannabe. And they are really annoyed. Boom Boom and
0: Mirage and and Bobby are all really annoyed. When they find out that the money that Richie owes these guys is because he's borrowed from the mob. He had told them earlier on that they were just using him to get his dad. But X Force guys realize they've been lied to and they are ready to just walk out on Richie at that point. Richie, of course, is desperate for them to stick around and he says, I only borrowed the money to fund the movie that I'm making. I'm a filmmaker. And he is, but he's very desperate and he is, well, he's kind of sleazily endearing, which is quite nice
1: in a way. He's fun. He's a minor character, but I, I enjoy him here. It gives somebody, it gives the main character someone fun to bounce off of. But speaking of the main characters, this is only three of them, because it turns out Warpath and Siren are doing their own thing. Warpath wakes up from nightmares about everybody he loves dying to the passenger seat of a car. Siren is driving the two of them to go find Michael Whitecloud.
0: Yeah, they mention that there had been a stopover in Deadpool issue 12 in between issues.
1: I actually read that. Um, the details aren't really important. Um, Deadpool's kind of in love with Siren in this era, and he and he asks for help, but she's tired of his bullshit, so they leave. The main thing that was significant about that issue to me is that Deadpool is racist enough toward Warpath in it that the Marvel Unlimited digital version of the issue has one of those, the stereotypes were wrong then and they are wrong now, messages before the first page, and fair enough. Um, it was definitely the, the late 90s
0: yeah an unusual thing to see even that late to that kind of over slurs being used but um yeah glad that they've kind of flagged that up now
1: yeah it's a good choice though to have warpath and siren together like their history makes for really good drama i think
0: Yeah, they've got this mutual support. There's also a kind of annoyance and frustration and jealousy between them. It's a very nuanced relationship between the two of them. He's annoyed with himself. He is blaming himself intensely for the death of of basically everyone who knows and loves. But she is keen to make sure he knows that it's not actually his fault. She refers back to her own mother dying and saying you know, she herself is to blame
1: for that and hence her drinking. Uh, dude, Teresa, you were like a month old when your, when your mom died. You can give yourself a break there. I, I don't think you could have prevented it. <laughs> so they come across Michael Whitecliffe and he's been staying in this crappy hotel,
0: which is it's full of Apache artifacts and old porn mags and booze. This place sucks. The graffiti in the hall says toilet boys
1: that is the worst gang name why would you call yourself that
0: unless it's like a super team who all have toilet related powers like kid flush maybe
1: (laughs) boo i mean yay i mean boo i mean i don't know how to feel about that i think it makes me happy (sighs) you knew i was a snake and all that You know, snakes do hang out in sewers, as we learned in that one saber-tooth one-shot. So it all comes together. Yeah. Siren catches Michael in the air as he and his bottle
0: leap out of the window to try to escape from Jimmy, uh, because he thought that Siren and, and James were hitmen. This page is great. I love the way that the art here flows kind of down and across the page in these two stepped tiers. It, it, it echoes the fire escape that the scene takes place on. It's a really nice bit of business by Polina.
1: Yeah, when we've talked about Polina, you know, we, we talk mostly about his exaggerated features and body language. I think that's sort of his, his hallmark. We've talked a little about his habit of putting kind of, I don't know, almost art nouveau designs or like almost Renaissance-y halos in the background behind people. But his panel layout, it's not always like distractingly clever, but it's always very coherent. And sometimes it's thematically Wonderful,
0: yeah, it's a well thought through placement of these panels on the pages. Michael is a investigative reporter, it turns out, and he was a whistleblower. He was reporting on immoral doctors who were experimenting on Native Americans back in X force minus one, which we will get to. But more recently, he got some info on something called Project Stepladder, which was experimenting on additional disadvantaged folks to give people powers.
1: And at the time, he was staying at Camp Verde with his and the Proud Stars folks, and he only escaped the massacre that happened there because he was late getting back that night. A massacre, it turns out, was targeted specifically at him and his contacts in this whistleblowing operation he was engaged in. Yeah, and since then, he's been
0: on the run, and he's been drinking to numb the pain, effectively. As he says to James...
1: I don't know which stereotype I became, the alcoholic reporter or the drunk Indian.
0: It's good of them to acknowledge that they're leaning into both of these stereotypes at this point because it's a little on the nose.
1: Yeah, it's like, hey, thanks for pointing out that that's a stereotype, but also you did the stereotype, but also I guess it fits the character situation.
0: Yeah, it's difficult to get away with something just by pointing out that you're doing it but they're, they're trying to have their cake and eat it here and, you know, the issue otherwise coasts along without causing too much offence. So Michael gives Warpath the location of the evidence, which is in a, a locker at a station, and Warpath asks the big question, which is who really killed his family, who really killed his tribe, because clearly it wasn't actually the Hellfire Club.
1: And at that point... Michael's head literally explodes all over the place. It's There's there's Michael's head just spattered all over Siren and Warpath and the walls, and goddamn. Yeah, it's really, really gross. It looks like it
0: could be blood-colored brown for maybe Comics Code reasons, but I think it's maybe meant to be his brains? In any event, that takes us on to X-Force issue 73,
1: stop motion. This issue is written again by John Francis Moore, guest penciled by Andy Smith, inked by Mark Morales, Scott Hanna, and Sean Parsons, colored by John Callis, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft's Colia Fuchs, again with a great name. Um, So let's take a break from the gross brains because they're gross and check in with Boom Boom, Sunspot, and Mirage, specifically Boom Boom, who is in a diner looking at a dreamy little wallet-sized pic of Cannonball and his 90s floppy hair, and she's writing him a letter. And I appreciate here that the handwriting is decent, if very plain print, and that she writes pretty well. She does write more like people talk, which many podcasters also do, or many people who are not experienced writers, which I like. So let's talk a little about Tabby, because a lot of people write her as a sort of bimbo stereotype um, that can be fun. I mean, she was written that way in Next Wave and the much more recent Exterminators.
0: Yeah, I have great reservations about how... Tabby has been reinvented since Next Wave. I really don't like the way that Tabby was revamped in that series. Ellis essentially made her an idiot and a drunk idiot at that. And it was not the character that I remembered from reading X-Force in the 90s. So I like when she is shown to be a little bit more resourceful. I like when she's shown to have a bit more... Uh, wit about her and a bit more intelligence and that's not to say that you can't bring in some of these other elements such as you know they they gave her alcoholism as a character trait and you you have to pick up on that and so when Ed Brisson was writing New Mutants at the outset of the Krakoan era that was something which he picked up on with the um the boom boom element of the earthbound part of that storyline. But generally, I am a big fan of this version of Boom Boom and not so much the um, the revised version,
1: shall we say. I can understand that, yeah. I mean, I, I really am enjoying the hell out of what Leah Williams is doing with Boom Boom, but at the same time, Exterminators is a book so much off in its own direction. Like It's canonical, but its feel maybe isn't necessarily definitive so that works a little better for me but i agree i miss this version of boom boom i miss where that wild girl attitude was in large part a cover for trauma where she actually is a pretty smart person even though she almost tries not to come off that way i don't know i mean every character is going to change over time of course but i agree this this run in particular i think is a, a highlight of of boom boom
0: yeah definitely she's sitting as you say at the, at the table writing her letter to cannonball she is printing rather than trying to do a handwriting font and i must thank colina fuchs for not doing a handwriting font. please people stop doing handwriting fonts
1: yeah yeah that stuff's hard to read especially at an angle i don't know i think i can still technically write cursive but i've reverted to print as well it's It's just it's just more civilized (laughs) It makes you
0: feel like you should be spending longer reading the comic than you actually need to be because you're trying to figure out was that an n or an s or or is that an a or but anyway but boom boom's having a bit of an introspective moment and her letter is pretty heartfelt
1: towards cannonball as she says i'm trying to convince everyone to go to the colossal man gathering in texas it's supposed to be a real freak show sounds like fun huh If you want. I mean, if you're not too busy with the X-Men, you could meet us there too. I would love so much to see you, even for a few days. I miss you, and I think about you a lot. Yeah. She says to the rest of the the group
0: that Sam deserves better, and she, again, is right. And Bobby points out that Sam's lucky to have her, especially after Leila Cheney, which, again, totally
1: fair, and as Boom Boom acknowledges, Thanks, Bobby. For a shallow, self-absorbed hothead, you can be surprisingly sweet sometimes. Backhanded as it was, I'll take that as a compliment, Chica. (sighs) So charming. So with that charming palate cleanser, let's get back to spattered brains. And let's also talk about the cover to this issue, where Siren is holding a fallen Warpath with the caption, The Death of Warpath! Really? Is it a hoax or an imaginary story? They didn't say so i don't know but uh anyway warpath and siren apparently didn't take too much time getting away from spattered brain town but were quickly pulled over by the cops
0: yeah the cops are looking for warpath and siren because they claim that it's you know that we've got an apb out for people who match your descriptions but actually they're just crooked cops who were actually hired specifically. In this case, to take these two down, and also they're kind of
1: racist. So I don't feel too bad when the heroes beat the crap out of them. I love seeing racists getting beaten up. Mm-hmm. I, it's just—it's just satisfying, you know. It's cathartic. It is. Uh, Warpath actually does keep politely but firmly reminding uh, these cops and other characters in this story that Native American is the proper term, not Indian or even worse, Indian, as these characters use he's been having a hard time i mean uh people being racist at him aside um he blamed himself for so long for his people's death he figured they were only targeted because he dared to leave the hellions based on the fact that the hellfire club mask was found at the site of of the killings yeah but that's apparently not the case and apparently he's been beating himself up for no reason which seems to make him feel like a different kind of weirdly guilty And Siren is just kind to him. She just listens. She, you know, admonishes him that he's being too hard on himself. But she's just there with him. Like, they've had a weird Rocky Romantic and pseudo-romantic history, but they are genuinely good and supportive friends.
0: Yeah. Her relationship with him is less well-sung, I think, than, (laughs) no pun intended there on the old Siren front, (laughs) than a lot of the other major relationships in the run of that sort of first 113 or whatever, 115 issues of X-Force. But it is still a, a key relationship. And the two of them, I think, are kind of undervalued members of the team. When people come to to talk about X-Force, people kind of go back to what the New Mutants characters did in that time. But, mm-hmm. you know, X-Force is not just New Mutants. X-Force is an expanded and, um, you know, all new, all different. I believe the term is
1: very much so yeah yeah that's i mean that's something we see in comics all the time right like whatever the definitive or most well-known era of a comic was that's the mean that everything reverts to yeah and i get it i love seeing the original nine new mutants together i mean you know jay and i just talked recently about how much we love new mutants truth or death despite the fact that a lot of people don't uh and i'm sure that's part of why but at the same time Like Yeah, the fact that these teams grow and change is part of what makes them interesting. The fact that Richter and Boom Boom ended up becoming core members of the New Mutants toward the end of that run, that's part of what helps define that part of the run. Um, I think Siren did have the misfortune to come in during an era where the writing wasn't as strong and she's a character people have always struggled with mm. and Warpath has been written you know kind of inconsistently and that's that's also challenging for him but like these are good characters you could do a lot with these characters actually in um, Vita Ayala's recently ended New Mutants run I thought Warpath was incredibly compellingly written like I think that was maybe the best he's ever been written
0: yeah I think it's a terrific series and people who are up to date with Cracone uh, era stuff should read that if you're waiting till we cover that on
1: this show. Well, we'll see you in maybe 30 years. (laughs) Yup. Oh God, how long will it take (laughs) us to catch up? I don't even (laughs) want to think about that. I mean, we're in 98, we're in 98 and that's fine. Anyway, they do find Michael Whitehut's files in the locker they were supposed to be in, but just as they rip that locker open, they are confronted by the guy who apparently sent the cops. This is Edwin Martinek from X-Force Minus One. He was one of the guys that was conducting those horrible experiments on people. Okay, maybe we should have already covered the minus issues, but uh, too late. We haven't. We'll get to them. Anyway, point being, this Edwin guy has powers now, thanks to the various experiments, as he can turn into a wolfman, which he does, and proceeds to beat the crap out of our heroes and poison them with his... Claws. Did you know that male platypuses have venomous spurs on their hind legs? I kind of wish this guy was a were platypus. Platypuses are amazing. Platypuses lay eggs, even though they're mammals. They
0: don't have stomachs. They literally have like a spider sense via these cells in their bills that de- like detect electrical fields from other organisms. Why is there no were platypus in the Marvel universe? Why have we not got MCU special presentation? Michael Giacchino's platypus by night.
1: for real and especially in the era we're covering especially in the 90s like we were just talking about how all these characters just keep getting more and more and more superpowers a platypus already has all those powers a platypus (laughs) like if you give that platypus some sort of vague like psionic plasma powers you have got the full 90s package (laughs) throw some spikes on there too absolutely and maybe like spill
0: it platypus with like every single vowel is replaced by a y like
1: i love this plan if it was the 80s you could just throw an umlaut over one of the vowels to get that motley crew vibe Mm -hmm. uh but we digress although uh, now i just can't stop thinking of how much better this villain would be because he's actually kind of boring well what can you do um boring though he is he is also successful uh, because he ties up Siren and Warpath and then villain explains his deal as he prepares to experiment on them. And side note, as he prepares to experiment on them, he's assisted by one of the Zero robots. You know, like the all-white robots with no face and the Zero on his forehead that used to work with Strife. It's another one of those. Yeah, we actually find out that Strife was the guy behind Project Stepladder. And that means that
0: Strife was the one who gave the order to kill everyone at Camp Verde and frame the Hellfire Club. So Strife is really the guy that Jimmy's been looking for.
1: And, you know, I kind of like that. I mean, on the one hand, sure, it's awfully convenient that the big X-Force villain from the start, Strife, is behind this plot point. But it's also more thematically appropriate than the Hellfire Club, who have really never had anything to do with X-Force. They were a big deal in the New Mutants era, but not since X-Force became X-Force. Not since James himself joined the team, uh, with a couple of brief exceptions in New Warriors crossovers and such. But but still, um, I'm into this. And it's also always interesting to have the big villain behind something be a guy who's already dead then you get a lot more interesting processing that the character has to deal with. Also, you get a strange story we'll be covering momentarily, but um, you wouldn't have to, and it would still work. Yeah, this guy Edwin is a true believer
0: in Strife. He's convinced that Strife is going to return from the dead. (sighs) He's not a a great or compelling villain, but he does his job for the small number of pages in which he's made to appear.
1: Should have been a platypus. Indeed.
0: We would have had a Marvel Legends builder figure of him by
1: now if he'd been a platypus. (laughs) Yes! You could have gotten a part of him with spat grovel, maybe. (laughs) So Siren hums, like, super hard to break out of her metal muzzle and freeze them both, and there's a big fight. I bet that sounds like a a nuclear-powered kazoo when she does that. (laughs) She's got this metal thing strapped across her mouth and she manages to explode it out with her sonic scream. You had one job, metal muzzle thing. Pathetic. Not only is this guy not a platypus, but he's bad at superhero bondage. Yeesh. (laughs) But as his final act before Siren nearly shatters him, breaking all of his bones with her sonic scream, werewolf Edwin jabs a titanium needle into Warpath's heart and pumps him full of amphetamines and Warpath dies. I guess it wasn't a hoax or an imaginary story. Shit. And that takes us to X-Force number 74, called Afterlife. Oh, okay, that's a relief.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the writer here uh, is still John Francis Moore. Adam Polina is back. Mark Morales is on inks, and Marie Javins on colors. The letters, again, are by Richard Starkings and Common Craft. We are in hell! For this issue, Warpath is dead. Um, Warpath was taken out way more easily than his brother was. I mean, John Proudstar needed a full airplane to
1: kill him. Warpath, he just needed one needle. I mean, I guess to James's credit, uh, at least he died because he was defeated in combat, not because he decided to chase down a thing that was in the sky and make it explode. (laughs)
0: Yeah, there is that. So Siren is yelling at him as he's lying here on the ground, dead. She's shouting him to breathe, she's doing CPR, but Warpath at this point is in hell, like full-on classic-looking hell. There's brimstone and sulfur and rivers of blood and everything is red, and it is a whole vibe,
1: really. Warpath, however, isn't really sure about the way this all feels. Still, I don't feel dead. I just feel lost. He also feels shirtless in this weird psychic afterlife projection, uh, which does show off his Rad Thunderbird back tattoo. Like, I, I know that that's not uh, specifically a specifically Apache symbol and it's mostly just a tribute to his dead brother, but it, it's a really good tattoo and it looks cool. Yeah. So
0: he meets up almost immediately with his family. Mm, not actually his family. They turn into various tentacled and clawed demons. One of them that was pretending to be his mother actually scolds him for his tone, which I think is a really nice touch. There's this incredible panel of him holding up this stick, this kind of fence post almost, and grimacing at the shadows that are being cast behind him um, as these terrifyingly spiky demons are manifesting
1: in front of him. And then he's saved by strife. Yeah, yeah, Strife, that that guy we were just talking about, that character who died a long time ago in Executioner's Song when he got pulled into a time explosion, and then his mind survived inside Cable, and he would take Cable over and he made him grow a goatee, and then he telepathically killed himself out of spite just so that no one would know how to cure the legacy virus. That guy, you know, covered in armor with lots of blades and spikes and a big red cape, here he is. He's gone even more spikes and blades now that he's
0: gone to hell. He looks like the Warhammer 40,000 version of Strife. He's got a staff made from a skull and a spine. He's riding this two-headed, masked, obese man, which looks like the Mole Man with, with two heads. One of the heads is eating souls. The bridle itself is covered in skulls. Strife has got the aesthetic...
1: Oh, man. See, Strife should never have been a terrorist mutant leader. He just should have been on, like, heavy metal album covers. I actually really like that even his armor—I mean, it's basically the same armor, but it's been altered just a little. There are sort of skeletal elements to it. Like, there's this sort of spine uh, along the top center of the helmet. It looks so rad. It does. Strife's plan is one of the old-time classics.
0: If he defeats Warpath while they in hell, they will switch places, and he can come back to
1: life in Warpath's body. Uh, Yeah, you know, like Mr. C from Twin Peaks or Mr. Scratch from Alan Wake. A lot of misters with stuff like that. (laughs) James is
0: more than happy to oblige Strife if Strife's looking for a fight. This guy killed his entire reservation. And Strife is like, well, sure. I mean, I killed
1: thousands. For me, it was Tuesday. Now I wish Raul Julia could have played Strife. And I guess he also would have played Cable. I'd be okay with that. It would have been amazing. Meanwhile, back
0: in Missouri in the land of the living... Brunhilda the Valkyrie turns up wearing almost nothing. I mean, she would make Jennifer Kale blush, I think, in terms of the minimal amount of metal that this bikini is made of. But she turns up to meet X-Force. She's got her sword, Dragon Fang. She's got her Pegasus, Aragorn. We saw her recently in the X-Force and Cable annual 1997, where she also turned up to ask for help saving the Valkyries from Malakith the Accursed. And she's seen that Warpath's dead and that his soul's gone to a hell. Not necessarily the hell because the Marvel Universe has got a whole bunch of different little hells that just float around the place. It's like a franchise operation. And it wasn't where it was supposed to be going. And Valkyries can't exactly interfere with afterlifes despite Mirage's habit of doing exactly
1: that. But she can certainly open a portal for other folks to do so. Oh man, it's like the Watcher who can never interfere, except when he kind of sort of can, which is most of the time. (laughs) Sunspot is keen to get cracking with this plan, because as he says, Warpath can't die. Stuff like
0: that doesn't happen to them.
1: I mean, Bobby, I appreciate the enthusiasm, but there was Cypher and Warlock and Magic and Warpath's own brother. (laughs) Meanwhile, back in hell, Strife
0: is winning. Strife's about to finish Warpath off. And Warpath finally hears Siren talking to him in the land of the living. And she's recounting their history to the reader, and she's begging him to live. And the lord of this particular hell shows up. He's a thin, spiky-haired blue man in a
1: suit. Yeah, it's Blackheart. I remember him from the old Ghost Rider Wolverine Punisher one-shots. I think the first one is called Heart of Darkness. He's the son of the devil, kinda, sorta. And I love everything about the way he looks and the way he speaks, especially as he tells Strife. I expected more from the self-proclaimed chaos-bringer. Instead, while
0: you'd been so enthralled with the sound of your own voice, the
1: boys re-established a link,
0: fragile though it may be, with the living.
1: And it's not just that Link, because Mirage, Sunspot, and Boom Boom teleport the hell in and start a fight. Yeah, Strife says that Mirage would never have infiltrated the MLF while he was alive. Okay, Grandpa, now take your medicine.
0: Almost everyone on Strife's MLF was an idiot, so I don't think his hiring protocols were particularly strict, frankly. Right. (laughs) Blackheart also attacks, and can I just say that a devil... Using the phrase, please allow me to introduce myself as an opening conversational gambit is very pleasingly on the
1: nose. I enjoyed that very much. And he uses the the age-old technique of bringing out everyone's greatest fears. But the characters are all buds. They're practically family and they help each other out with all kinds of emotional support and encouragement. And Blackheart is not pleased. How I despise the mortal capacity for love and compassion. At which point, Warpath gets up, strength renewed, and beats the crap out of Strife, who is pulled into a river of fire by a bunch of demon hands.
0: It turns out this was all Blackheart's plan. He just wanted to feed on even more of Strife's despair, so he had to engineer another situation in which Strife will be humiliatingly beaten. And now, with the five members of X-Force alive and reunited, they're off to track down everyone who's
1: responsible for killing James's people, who aren't already in hell or possibly they're off to go to the marvel universe equivalent of burning man (laughs) in like the next issue indeed meanwhile there is through all these
0: issues a very brief and occasional b plot about domino rang domino just underwent a mysterious forced medical procedure which was imposed on her by an old rival and she's been in pretty bad shape since she's got an amazing new haircut though
1: so you know it's impossible to say whether it's good or bad. Sort of a wash, right? Yeah. So here, Domino's examined by an old neurologist buddy who owes her a favor, and she finds out that what was done to her to mess with her powers, to mess with her concentration, to mess with everything, her old nemesis, Grasnova, implanted this device into Domino's spine that sends out random electrical bursts to mess with her reflexes and powers. It's kind of like Harrison Bergeron, which is a story I feel differently about than I used to when I was a teenager. So Dom's trying to lay low with this new fake
0: identity, but she just can't resist protecting an old man from some bank robbers because she's a superhero, dang it! She's going to do superhero things! And she stands up for him and says,
1: Okay, that's my cue. Sometimes having a conscience can be a royal pain. Well,
0: Dom, you could always externalize it into a golden robot, like the Mastermold did that one time. Never forget conscience! Most people forgot conscience. There are a couple of cops watching surveillance footage of this later, and they decide that they need to track Dom down and find out who she is. And for her part, she decides that she needs to get back up to speed. She's a bit rusty. And implant be bedam, she needs to find some mercenary work. And so she phones the Hell House, which brings Deadpool back into her orbit again.
1: So, Al, what do you think about this being a completely disconnected, I guess, C-plot in this run? Does that that make it feel more like X-Force? Is it distracting? It is a a bit of a pulling away from the
0: clean break stuff, which is one thing, but you do want to bring the characters back home, quote-unquote, eventually. And so you kind of need to be able to set up the other track. And so having Dom... Continue a very slow plot, basically through these issues, keeps her fresh in people's minds. It makes people go, oh, "Okay, we've not completely forgotten the the old characters from the cable era of X Force. This isn't a, a, a wiping clean of the slate." Domino's been a member of X Force since pretty much the, the beginning of the run, you know, setting Copycat to one side, and so she is a key member of the team she's a key character and if you want to emphasize the fact that the x-force team is not just the new mutants team mark 2 you do kind of need to reinforce that it's not the school anymore it is not just a bunch of team characters
1: there are other people involved as well so i think it works pretty well for me that makes a lot of sense yeah i, I like your take on that And I'm also curious about your take on a character who's very much not here, despite appearing in the corner boxes on the cover of each each issue with his portrait, that being Caliban. Last we saw Caliban, he was captured by Ozymandias, who wiped the memory of the only person to see that capture, that being Cable. He hasn't been in any of these issues. He still gets a corner box spot. What is going on here? I
0: think Caliban's agent deserves a raise. Caliban's agent has managed to negotiate a series regular credit for his client, even though he's not in every episode. He's basically the Siroc Lofton of X-Force. He gets to be in the opening credits, but he doesn't always turn up. Good work
1: if you can get it, I guess. (laughs) There is one other background plot with even less content that we've been seeing bits and pieces of which is a shadowy figure in a trench coat trailing our heroes and killing a bunch of people that they came into contact with. He he burns down the bar that X-Force went to at one point, and then he murders the firefighters that show up for pretty much no reason. And in Missouri, after X-Force goes into hell to rescue Warpath, when the gangsters show up again to collect their money early from the now-alone Richie, uh, this figure burns all the gangsters into skeletons— Uh, while yelling at them in his red speech bubbles. You know, like the kind of speech bubbles that Sunspot has. Richie even thinks this mysterious figure is Sunspot, asking if it's Bobby. The figure, however, replies, You're welcome, Richie. And don't call me Bobby. Ever. So we'll get to that whole thing, and it's gonna get a lot more confusing. But that is... The first set of issues of John Francis Moore's road trip era run, I'd heard this was a good era, albeit a controversial one. I liked it even more than I thought I would. How about you? What's your take on this? I really dig it. It's so great, particularly after we've been reading some
0: fairly ropey issues of X-Factor to be able to dig into a series where it is solid stuff and really very enjoyable. I honestly wish more
1: superhero comics nowadays had the kind of vibe that this run has. Completely agreed. I also like the vibe of our listeners, and they've got questions. Indeed. An
0: anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, do you ever wish you could skip to talking about Krakoa?
1: You know... There are times when we're slogging through uh, a really dry arc of something or other When I kind of wish we could skip to the interesting stuff, but that's never really been the point of this podcast. The point of this podcast is to go through the good times and the bad times talk about how they all connect. And I have to say, even in the comics we've covered that I've liked the least, there's still always fun stuff to talk about. Uh, Chuck Austin often comes up in runs of X-Men that people don't like, which I get, but you know what, Chuck Austin isn't? Boring. Ever. Some of the most questionable X-Men comics are also some of the ones with the most to talk about. And it's also always fun to um, lose our minds a little when we're covering <laughs> some exceptionally bad comics. So, you know, I'm excited to someday get to Krakoa, uh, like you were saying, Al, probably in uh, quite a few years. Or sooner than that, to get to, say, Grant Morrison's run. But until, until then, it's fun. I do worry a little sometimes that some listeners are just going to tune in for the more well-known or the better written and drawn comics. And I can't blame them for doing so. Um, hopefully, when we're covering dire stuff, people still actually listen. But if nothing else, it's really fun to do those episodes. So no complaints.
0: <laughs> yeah, the Krakoa stuff has obviously given the X-Men a real shot in the arm. But there's always plenty of stuff in every era to look at, particularly when there are so many titles. They're they're not all going to be great. And we see that with books like x Men or X-Factor at this point that we're covering. But sometimes you'll find a gem in there like the Sabretooth one shot that we covered a couple of episodes
1: ago. Yeah. And it actually is something of an art that we try to do well at to try to pair some of the more with some of the less interesting uh, comics out there so that every episode hopefully has at least something of a gem in it or just has us going insane about leprechauns, as the case may be. Majalha asks on Tumblr, which villain cheats at Mario Kart the most, and which absolutely refuses to cheat at Mario Kart?
0: I think in terms of refusing to cheat at Mario Kart, Apocalypse's code of honor would never allow him to cheat. He would just expect that anybody who wasn't good enough at the game would lose, and possibly also die. (laughs) <laughs> um, in terms of ones who would cheat, spiral, I think. She would cheat incessantly because she's got three times the normal number of hands so she can work all the buttons at once. But she just wouldn't see that as cheating at all. That's just her, the way she's set up.
1: You know, no notes. I think you got it. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and Edinburgh, Scotland and is produced by Matt Hunter who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher,
1: Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn.
0: Our show is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform, It genuinely
1: really helps. We're holding off on Hawk Talk until Jay's back, so no episode next week. But in two weeks, it's our 400th episode. And the return of everyone's favorite bondage viking, Eric the Red.
0: She's been there, because uh, Vanessa Paradis um, was the, the woman instead? Um, I just, so I just think that her name would have been much better as Vanessa Paradis than as. Um, I don't know if. I'm going to say that again because I don't know how f- famous Vanessa Paradis is as a singer outside of Europe. So <laughs> what about? I'm going to go back. I've never heard of her Vanessa but Paradis. I, she used to be married to. Oh shit, who was it? Oh, like lady kravitz or somebody like that i can't remember okay okay anyway she <laughs> she had this song called be my baby and it was it, 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 she was she was great but she was a 1990s mostly european she was french possibly she was johnny depp's girlfriend or wife anyway sorry matt this whole this whole bit is garbage please <gasps> cut this i'm sorry um, <laughs> but anyway <laughs>